Good morning. Amen. How's everyone doing? You got your shopping done? Everyone done? Anyone? Anyone done? Anybody? Oh, we got There we go. Boffman's done. Hey, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Mark. If you're just joining us, welcome to Redemption Parker. So glad to worship God with you this morning. We are actually concluding a series that we've been doing. Uh, we call it Framework. It's our, our attempt to do, give you a framework of, of the narrative arc of God's redemptive plan, uh, specifically in this series through the Old Testament as it points to and is fulfilled in Jesus and just give you a, a deeper appreciation for who Jesus is uh, through his word. And so if you have your Bible, I hope you do, go to the very last book of the Old Testament. It's, it's Malachi. Uh, and if you get to Matthew, you've gone too far, but it's about two-thirds away through your through your Bible, it's uh, Malachi. Now, I was thinking about Malachi this week and realizing that uh, you know there's a lot of traditions and uh, uh, just stuff with the holidays, but 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 Malachi is the is God bringing Festivus to the rest of us. Uh, anyone anyone catch that reference there? Festivus, uh, Seinfeld. Uh, Frank Costanza, uh, George's dad, uh, when George was a kid, much to George's uh, shame, uh, he, he decided, I, I don't want anything to do with the, the commercialism and the religious aspects of the holidays. Uh, I want something for the rest of us. I, I, and they called it Festivus. Festivus for the rest of us. And, and as, as all holidays have, they have their traditions. And instead of a Christmas tree, they had a, a Festivus pole. You know the Festivus pole? Just a plain aluminum pole. And... Uh, and there, there's other traditions, like the feats of strength. And so poor little George would have to wrestle his father and pin him down before Festivus could be over. Uh, but perhaps the best tradition of Festivus, and, and, and why I say Malachi is God bringing Festivus to the rest of us, is uh, the airing of grievances. And George, uh, uh, Frank gathers his, his family and friends and neighbors and some strangers and says, all right, it's time for the airing of grievances. And he says, I got some problems with you people and you're about to hear about it. And he just unloads on them. And uh, that's what Malachi is. So I've got some problems with you people and, and you're about to hear about it. You're like, great, I'm glad we came to today. No, but, but, but if, you, if you read through your Bible, and I hope... I hope all of us next year just kind of commit maybe to read through the entire Bible. When you do and you get to about September and you start to get into the prophets, there's going to be a temptation there. You've already kind of grinded through some stuff, through some history and stuff, but now you get to the prophets and not only are they saying weird things, they're saying hard things. And, and the New Testament is just over the horizon. And so you're going to be tempted to, to just skip over, uh, you know, at, at least the, the, the minor prophets. I mean, that, that, that just means they're shorter. And you're going to st- want to skip over Malachi. But, but there's good reasons for us to not do that. There's good reasons for us to come to Malachi today, not only because it has a word for God's people then, there's a word for us now. I mean, the prophets, all of them, uh, they, they do a good job of helping us in our day and age in a post-enlightenment, post-modern, post-truth, post-everything world where we've kind of agreed together as a society that, that you can just decide whatever you want God to be. You can, you can say, my God is like this and my God does this and my God would never judge that behavior and my God has these ethical boundaries and as long as my God doesn't I- impose on your God, then, then we all kind of just nod and agree. But the prophets don't let us do that. That they bring, us, they bring us out of our myopic view of God where it's all about me and God. And they say, no, no, no. You don't get to decide who God is. 
We'll tell you who God is. <laughs> this is who God is. Take him or leave him. So, so one, it's just good for us to lift our eyes, lift our, our eyes out of ourselves. But, but the other thing that the prophets do, though they have a hard word, they have a hard word for hard-hearted people to, to break their hearts and soften their hearts, to prepare their hearts for the gospel. And so Malachi is going to have a hard word for us. And his name means messenger. Malachi means messenger. And I would just say, even as I studied this this week, don't shoot the messenger. Like as I, as I put forth uh, Malachi, one, one of the things that the prophets do is they don't play. They, they just don't play. They, they, they don't feel like God needs a PR representative. They don't feel like uh, the, the character and nature of God needs to be spun for it to be more palatable for you. No, they're, they're just like, here it is. And, and, and when you see that, there, there should be, and, and their heart is to, um, in fact, Malachi is going to say it, return to me. This is the, the repeated refrain throughout all the prophets. Return to me, God says. But, but to return means also to, to repent, to, to be convicted of sin. And, and I just want to say up front, that is a good gift. When God pricks your heart and the Holy Spirit pricks your heart and, and, and calls you to repentance, praise God for the moment. I mean, that, that, that hurts and that's hard, but, but, but what if you never felt that? What, 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 it'd be like uh, ha- having something wrong with your nervous system where you couldn't feel pain and touch a hot pot and just burn your hand. Like, to call us to repentance is God's kindness to us. And so you should never surround yourself with, with books or, or churches or people that, that, that only make you feel good about yourself. Like if there's never a point where you're like, man, uh, I, I need to change, I need to turn, then, then you should run from those books, run from those churches, or, or plead with God that he would convict you of sin. And so that's one of the things that Malachi is going to do for the people then. But, 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 but what they're wrestling then, honestly, we wrestle with now. And so, uh, again, don't shoot the messenger, but that becomes a very important theme, messenger. There's actually three messengers in the book of Malachi. There's Malachi himself. He's going to point us to John the Baptist as the messenger that prepares the way. And he's going to point us to the ultimate message and messenger, the word of God, Jesus. He's trying to prepare their hearts to receive Jesus. He's, He's bringing advent to them. And so uh, Malachi has uh, a few purposes for this. Let me just set the context for you a little bit. This is about 400 years before Jesus. This is in a, a period of uh, history called the post-exile period. So, so as the people of God have repeatedly done, uh, God has loved them, he has made covenants with them, and they have turned their back, and God, uh, in his disciplining them because he loves them, had sent them into exile in a place called Babylon. And they were there for 70 years, but by the prophecies of Jeremiah and Daniel, uh, they said they'd come back after 70 years, and God brought them back, and they came back, and they began to rebuild their lives, and through the guidance of like Ezra and Nehemiah, they began to rebuild the temple, and they had these promises from Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah that said, when you come back in the land, the temple's going to be rebuilt, uh, you're gonna, the land's going to prosper, you're going to become a great and mighty nation. And it's about 100 years after that that they've been in the land. So a few generations now. And the grandparents have said, oh, God said, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. But it hasn't happened. The temple looks ridiculously like a, a, a shamble of what it once was. Their lives are, are, are a shamble. 
that their enemies are still on the horizon. They don't have the prosperity. And they're beginning to doubt the goodness and promises of God. They're beginning to grumble. They're beginning to say, God doesn't love us. And again, they've been there, but we've all been there at different points in our lives, in our walk, right? Like, like there's just points like, man, I don't really know if God loves us. And so Malachi comes with a message. He's got three purposes. First, he wants to remind us and them of God's steadfast love, that he is loving us and has loved us. Secondly, he wants to call us back. He wants to call us to repentance. As painful as that is, call us back to repentance for the honoring of his great name. And finally, he wants to point us ahead. He wanted to point them to the first advent, to a a sense of angst and longing and desire for, for the Messiah to come and for us, for a sense of angst and longing and desire for Jesus to come back once and for all. So these are the purposes of Malachi. Let's look at chapter one, start in verse two. Remember, the first one is he wants to uh, affirm his love for the people and for you. Verse two, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is it not, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. Let's just pause right there. That Again, if you understand the narrative story of, of, of the Old Testament, that begins to make sense. But, what, but Mal, what Malachi is basically doing is saying, uh, God has loved you. They're like, we don't know. We don't see it. We don't see the evidence of God's love. And he says, it isn't just a, a desire. It isn't just saying that he's loved you. There are, there are real events in history that he has shown his, uh, his faithful, steadfast, undeserved, sovereign love towards you and all the people of Israel. So he points to Jacob and Esau, points to the, the, the patriarchs. And, and, and in that case, we, we know that God loved Jacob, meaning he set his affection on Jacob, not because Jacob was a superstar, not because he's like, man, this, this guy would be really great. No, Jacob was a deceiver. He was a sinner like me and you. There was nothing good in Jacob. It was the goodness of God to say, I'm going to bless you, even though he should have, by inheritance, blessed Esau. Out of Esau came the Edomites, which are now currently the enemies of God's people. And God just reminds them, hey, I've blessed you. I've made you my people. Not only that, uh, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, I called him out when he was worshiping the moon. And I said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I made covenants with him. When you were in slavery, I, I delivered you out of slavery and I showed my power there. I made my covenant with David. Time and time and time and time and time again, I have been faithful to my people in tangible ways. And just was reminding them of that. And how much more do we have than they had? We have a real cross in history where sometimes we doubt. I don't feel God's love. Well, look to the cross. Look to where Jesus, in love, went and bore our sin in our place and poured out his blood. He loves you. This is, don't just think of it as a feeling. Look, there is rock-solid evidence. There is a cross in history. Hold on to that. You are loved. Know that. So that when he has a hard word for you, know that it is a good word for you to bring you back to himself. So let's, let's, let's drop down there. He says, great is the, uh, at the end of verse five, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Verse six, as a, a son honors his father and a servant his master, if I then am a, a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? 
says the Lord of hosts. What, what is he doing? He's reminding the people of who he is. The people have forgotten who God is. When you forget who God is, you forget who you are. You forget what life is about. So he's reminding them, I'm a father. Therefore, you're my sons and daughters. I'm a master. Therefore, we should be his glad-hearted servants. He says, I am the Lord of hosts. 24 times Malachi calls God the Lord of hosts. He's invoking the image that Isaiah saw of the glory and the majesty of God who has the multitude of angels singing out his praise forever. This isn't a little trite deity that you carved and put in your bedroom. He is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. He'll go on and say, he is a, I am a great king. That means we are kingdom citizens. We live for him. He'll go on and say, I am the creator. That means we were created in his image. When you forget who God is, you forget who you are. And your joy is robbed. So he's just reminding of that. But, but he is a God worthy of all honor, glory, respect, everything. And he says, well, where is my honor? Where is my glory? He says, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? This is the pattern in Malachi. This is Festivus. He's saying, I've got some problems with you people. And they're like, what's the problem? How have we despised your name? He says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Here's what's what's happened. They are going through the motions religiously. They are half-hearted in their worship. They are saying, what's the bare minimum that I can do to worship God today? They have the law, but, but, but they're like, what's the bare minimum? They, they were to bring the, their, their first and their best. They were to offer up that as an act of worship. Why? Not just because he's worthy of it. Not just because he's worthy of our best sacrifice. Because the whole point of the whole sacrificial system was to point to the one that is the perfect sacrifice that is Jesus that would be to come. And the whole point was that the nations would look on and they would see their devotion to the living God. They would see their sacrifices and they would long for that. But, but, but instead they're, they're throwing out blind animals, diseased animals, the, the least, the, 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 the outside, the, the leftovers. And he's confronting them. And this is not just a problem in their day. Jesus will confront the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation. It says, woe to you. You, 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 you are lukewarm. You're half-hearted. God's going to come and, and shut down your church if you don't repent and turn back. This is a problem for us. It is an offense to God when we give God our leftovers. When we say, well, I've, I've run through these shoes. Maybe some missionaries would want them. You like that, God? No! You don't give God your second best. You don't give God your leftovers. It reflects Jesus and his sacrifice. Wouldn't that demand our best? And so he confronts them. But even in this, it is for ultimately their renewal and restoration, for their repentance, for their joy. Verse 9, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that we were 
Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. It's like, it'd be better not to come to worship. It'd be better just don't show up. Like, you'll be less condemned by God to just not show up than to say, I'll give you my leftovers. I'll give you half my heart. It says, oh, that someone would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept in, an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. What is at stake is the honor, the glory of God, and the joy of all people. The glory of God and the joy of all people. My name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations. That's the second time, says the Lord of hosts. But you've profaned it when you say that the, table, the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that it is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. It's a burden for us to come to worship. What, what's the minimum we can do? So, so that we still, uh, God will still bless us. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So, the Apostle Paul will put it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The picture is for us now as rescued and redeemed by the blood of Christ believers as our whole lives are to be offered as a sacrifice to show that God is a, a good God who had made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And so the question is, what does our worship say about God? Jesus said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now again, none of us are here. None of us have arrived at that moment. But, but, but what do we do when we realize we haven't arrived? Do we do what they did? Just shrug our shoulders? Uh, oh well. No. We get on our face and say, God, my worship is half-hearted. I, I, I haven't loved you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Please help me to do that. Give me the faith. What we sung about. Give me the spirit to give me uh, a passion for your name. So that's the first one. The second one that he's going to call him to is found in chapter 2. Because all, all of our lives are to be an act of worship. That includes all of our relationships and our families. Look at chapter 2 verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So let me just set this up. As they came back into the land, God had said, you, you are to marry people inside the covenant to pre preserve your life, to preserve your joy, to preserve your worship. And they said, no, nah, she looks pretty good. I'll take her. And she's like, well, I've got Molech as my God. And they're like, it's okay. Come on, bring that into our house. We'll have Yahweh and you have Molech. It's all good. It's an abomination. Malachi is actually a great book on discipleship. I can't tell you how many times we've had to just in tears uh, sit with people that, that, that did, not, did not obey this command to, to marry inside the covenant. 
Say, well, maybe I'll just flirt to convert. Maybe he'll, he'll become a Christian later or she'll become a Christian later. I just really am in love with her. And then the heartache and brokenness that comes out of that. But that's not the only thing. Verse 13 says, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering and accepts it with favor from your hand. They're like, God, why don't you do this? What's, like, why aren't you blessing us? Their, their lives are going poorly and they're, now they're blaming God, which is often the case. But verse 14, But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. They, have, they were faithless in their marriages. And again, what's at stake here? It's not just because God wants you to be faithful in your marriage. Marriage is to reflect God's faithfulness to his covenant people. Same thing in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul will say, marriage is to reflect Christ and the church. This is a profound mystery, he says. So, so our marriage covenant relationship should be a gospel proclamation to the world. And, and they are treating God lightly. They're treating his covenants lightly. And they're treating their covenants lightly. That The men are trading in their wives for younger, newer versions. And God says this is an abomination. You've been faithful. You have been un- faithless. Though she is your companion, your wife by covenant, did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? A godly offspring. So, so the children are a blessing, but not just children, godly offspring, discipled children. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to your wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. We'll come back to that says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. He's, he's calling them to repent. Stop divorcing. Stop treating your marriage lightly. Be committed because God is committed to us and be a reflection to the world in that way. Where it says, covers his garment with violence. That's actually a Hebrew idiom that, that the NIV, I think, translates better, which says, I hate divorce. God says he hates divorce. He says, it's, it's, it's meant, it's my idea, and it was meant to be a display of my covenant love, and you are not doing that. But so, so, so I wonder if it's possible, I, I think it is, that we could, as a faith family, have a very, very, very high view of marriage and the family and children and discipling, and, and we can come alongside people, and we can pray for one another, we can be in life together, and we can encourage them, and when they're struggling, we can come and, and help them, we can counsel them, we can plead with them, we can have a high, high view of marriage. And at the same time, can we not also have a very, very, very high view of the gospel that brings healing, grace, and forgiveness for those of us that have been through the brokenness of divorce, those of us that are going through it, those of us that will go through it, and we say, God is enough. He can heal. He can walk with you in this. The gospel can cover even this. Can we not both have both? A high view of family and marriage and a high view of the gospel that covers all. So that is what he's called us to. That's what he called them to. And so again, the question for us would be, how does our relationships reflect the kind of relationship God has for us? How does it reflect his love to the world? And where it doesn't, he calls us to repentance. There's a third area. Chapter 3. 
For I, the Lord, do not change. Verse 6, sorry. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is incredibly good news. God says, in relationship to my covenants, I'm faithful. I've always been faithful. I do not change. You've run away time and time and time and time and time and time again, but, but you're not consumed because of my steadfast love. That's good news. Again, he's just reminding them of that. Verse 7. For from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. That, you could highlight that. That is the summary of all the prophets. Return to me and I will return to you. It's an invitation to repent and come back. It is, a, it is God's kindness. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? That's a good question. And Malachi has already showed us a few ways how we can return, but then, now he's going to point to something else. He says, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So tithe just means 10%. Uh, Abraham was the first one to tithe. He tithed to a guy named Melchizedek, who is a foreshadow of Jesus. And, and so it was just this idea that everything we have comes from the hand of God. And, and God says, I want you to start by, to, to, to release your heart from the grip of greed and stuff and materialism and idolatry. I want you to start with 10%. And the Israelites, Israeli, Israeli, is the, the people, God's people would it, it end up giving about 23%. But you say, okay, well, okay, well, you know, that's just the Old Covenant. That's the Old Testament. And he'll go on, he'll say, and thereby put me to the test. Now, I want to be very careful with this. Because no verse in Scripture has been more twisted and, and, and abused by the prosperity, health, wealth, and faith teachers than this verse. And so our, our temptation is just to ignore it. Our, uh, some of you right now are, are nervous. Oh man, he, here we go again. The church is talking about money. I, I thought I'd come to this church and they didn't talk about it that much. But, but, but let's not distance ourselves too much. Well, let's deal with the text. It says, Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of the hosts, if I will, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to, to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So, so what this is not teaching is not teaching men. And, and it's not me saying, you know, you need to give all your money here so that you will be blessed. Just test God in this. And, and if you give $100, you'll get 1000 That's not what it's saying. It's saying God has given you life and breath and everything. And, and, and one of the ways that you can return to him, he says, is to be generous with what he's given you. Why, why is God, why would God go here though? Why would Jesus talk about money more than anything else that he talked? By far, about 20 times more than any other topic, Jesus talked about money. Did pastors just come in after the fact and insert those verses and be like, that's how we're going to get them? No. 
Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. There's just this intimate connection to our worship, to our understanding, to our, our, our faith, between our bank account and our hearts and God. Jesus talked about money not because he wants or needs your money. He talked about it because he wants your heart. And so he says, you say, well, that's the Old Testament. We're not under the tithe. You know the New Testament, one, assumes it and then expands on it. Jesus, the one time he mentions the word tithe in the, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10, he's actually rebuking the Pharisees and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you tithe a tenth of your mint and your cumin and your dill, even your spices, a picture of everything in your life, you're, you're doing this, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law to love God and do justice. But then notice what he says. He says, you should not have neglected the latter and, and I messed that up. You should do both. The latter and former thing. You know, I always get that confused. But he affirms the tithe. He says, it's not just about that. It's about understanding in the new covenant, we don't give to earn God's favor. We've got God's favor beyond overflowing more than we could ever think or imagine. And so God's people in the Old Testament were called to give sacrificially. In the New Testament, it's true. They were called to give joyfully. Paul tells the Corinthians, give joyfully. Uh, just on repeat. Why? Because this, there's just this connection between our hearts and our worship and our idolatry. Uh, I listened to Pastor Tim Keller out in New York City this week talk about this. He said, you know, wherever your money flows easiest, you can figure out what you worship. Wherever it goes easiest. Now, some people, and probably all of us are on the scale in different ways here, it, it just flows really easy to, to cars or to vacations or to stuff. And you say, okay, well, well there's, there's a reflection of your heart. Other people, it's, it's to position and, and to, to, to get status and prestige. And like, okay, that's, that's just where it's easy. For some of us, it's, it's for, for saving and putting away in our IRA and, and making sure that... that and and, and the, the tricky thing about this is there's a big gray line here. Like God does give you money to enjoy. And you should enjoy it. God, God does give you money to, to move you along in your position in life. You can have success. God does command us to be wise stewards and to save for the future. But for those of us that, that, that have a, a, a security idol, it looks really good. I save a lot because God tells me to, but really, I'm just afraid. I'm afraid that God's not going to show up when I'm 65 years old. And so I'm going to just save. I'm gonna, my money's going to flow there. It just, it just exposes us. I mean, that's too convicting. Let's move on. Um, so, so that's what he wants to do. He wants to remind the people and us of, of the steadfast love of God. He wants to call us back to repentance, that, that, that our, our, our sacrifices are to reflect the sacrifice of Jesus, that our marriages are to reflect the, the faithfulness of God, and that our, our money is to, to, proclaim the, this, to proclaim to the world that money isn't our idol. And so he says, here's how you start. Start with 10%. Now, I just want to be careful here. That this, the, the local church is not the Old Testament equ equivalent of the temple. I'm not saying give all 10% to the local church. I think every Christian between you and the Spirit should be giving in three areas. I, I do think you should give to the, the place where you are sped, uh, sped, uh, fed spiritually. I do think the local church. And if, if, you, if you don't feel like you can do that here, find a church where you can give joyfully and sacrificially to. 
But secondly, I think for, for ministries of, 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 ministry, uh, of mercy, of the poor and the oppressed, so adoption ministries, refugee ministry, famine relief, justice issues, international justice mission, you should be giving to these things. And then the third area that I think every rescued and redeemed people should give to for the glory of God and the joy of all people is the expanse of the gospel to church planning, to church planners, to mission agencies, to missionaries. And how, how that works out, between, that's between you and God. You have the freedom in that. But do it joyfully. Do it faithfully. Finally, he wants to point them to and stir in them a longing for Jesus. We see this in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That, that is John the Baptist. saying, when, when the Messiah comes, first I will send a messenger. He's going to prepare the way. A messenger, a Malachi. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's Jesus. That's the, that's the incarnation. That's Emmanuel coming to the temple that is the world. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's Jesus. That's the word of God made flesh. And he's trying to stir in them a longing for that day. And then in chapter 3, verse 16, something beautiful happens, at least with a remnant of the people. And may this be true of us as well. It says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Those who feared the Lord, it's a picture of gospel community. It's a picture of them coming together and and speaking with one another and reminding one another of the promises, reminding them of the covenant, reminding them of what's true. It's what we do on Sunday mornings and in our gospel communities, in our core groups. said the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him, those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. You are God's treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, chapter 4, verse 1, for behold, the day is coming. Now in the prophets, they often talk about the day of the Lord. And the vast majority of time when they talk about the day of the Lord, it is terrifying. It is the king coming to bring judgment on the earth. And it is a terrifying picture of God coming in his righteous wrath. But listen to what Malachi says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, so so far consistent with the other prophets, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, the day is coming, shall, uh, is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root or branch. That's a terrifying picture when God comes to judge the world. And then verse 2 starts with what I like to call a gospel but. Matthew calls it a Sir Mix-a-Lot but because it's big. But this is a gospel but. But for you... Who fear the name, fear my name. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I mean, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) But isn't that an amazing picture? 
Like in the day of the Lord when it's terrifying and His righteous wrath is about to be poured out. Not for us. Not for us that are covered by the blood of Christ and have His righteousness. No, that is our Father. Oh, He's holy and terrifying. But yes, He's here. He's here. And we're going to skip around. And we might skip around for a million years because why walk when you could skip? Because that's what it's going to be like when that comes. Do you feel the longing that He's trying to invoke in, our, in your heart for that day when you'll go out like calves released from the stall? And so he concludes, and the Old Testament is concluded, verse 4 and, f- 4 and 5, with two things. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I command him at Horeb for all Israel. So he says, re- look back, remember Moses, remember what you have, remember the promises, remember his covenant faithfulness, and look forward to Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah. That's John the Baptist the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He says, as you wait, remember Moses. Long for Elijah. And then in my Bible, I've got a a page that's mostly blank. It says New Testament. And you turn it over and then it's just blank there. If you've got some other books in there, we'll have a talk later. Uh, And that represents 400 years with the turn of that page. And I've taught before, and even a few weeks ago, I said, so there it is, 400 years of silence. But this week I realized, no, that's that's not the case at all. That's not the point that Malachi has just made. God is not silent. Remember Moses. You have the living Word of God. It's active. It's alive. As you wait, remember the Word of God. Come around. Remind each other of it. You have the Word. I love how the New Testament puts it in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So in a sense, there was no new revelation. There was the living active word. There was no new revelation. But then 400 years later, one night in a town called Bethlehem, a little baby cried and it was the voice of God crying out. Advent had come. Not the final advent. We still wait for that. And that's what Malachi has for us. And so remember that God loves you today. Remember that God is calling you constantly back to Him. We are called constantly to repentance, and that is God's gift to us. And then look for and long for the day when Jesus will come and set all things right. To that end, let me pray for us. So, Father, thank you for your good grace to us. Lord, much of this was a hard word meant for our good. And so I thank you for that. Lord, I pray for each person here in in these areas or maybe a thousand more where we're called to repentance. That's your good gift to us. As Aaron often says, it's not to bring shame and condemnation, but to set us free from those things. So thank you, Lord. Let us be a people that repent consistently and repeatedly. 
And so, Father, also just stir in us, even in this season, as we look back at the first advent to the second one, stir in us a longing for your coming, Jesus, and let us live in light of that day. We ask this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.